I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. So my dad, he's an interesting guy. He was a Formula race car driver, a medic in the Vietnam War, a playwright. He rides a Harley today, and he only drinks Grand Meunier. And he has some pretty incredible stories. In this dad tale, he tells the story about when he got not one, but two free meals after making it home from Vietnam. We drank a lot of beer uh, at college. And I used to go into the Gaslight restaurant, and that was where I was dating my first wife, Kathy, and we um, consumed quite a lot of beer, and one time it said, half beer for redheads. Well, I thought I was a redhead, but it was kind of Auburn, you know, and and, uh, and the proprietor, who was British, uh, or thought he was British, uh, said, you're not a redhead. You'll have to pay the full price. <laughs> so I said, they've been calling me red for years. What are you talking about? So, yeah, I paid the full price for, for beer. We did that every weekend. we go to the Gaslight Restaurant in, in Charlottesville, Virginia. And the proprietor, who was a good friend, he, we, he would play uh, God Save the Queen at 2 o'clock in the morning. So we thought he was British, and he had all these British people come in. And um, I wasn't British, but when I was going to Vietnam, he said, when you come back from Vietnam, you can have anything you want on the menu. I'll give you the best of everything. So I didn't think I was coming back, but anyway, I did come back. And Kathy and I went, and John Tuck is the proprietor. And he said, oh, I'm glad you're here. Anything you want, you just order. Oh, I ordered full course. Uh, grand, uh, you know, Grand Meunier. <laughs> uh, beer, uh, champagne. Um, and he, he gave us everything. Uh, filet mignon, you know. And it was great. And we thanked him very much. And then we decided to come back the next week. And he was sitting with his girlfriend. John Tuck was sitting with his girlfriend, Helena. Um, and uh, John Tuck says, well, I don't have any champagne. Is cold duck okay? And I was kind of taken back. I said, yeah, that's fine. Uh, not understanding exactly what the question was about because I was willing to pay uh, my, for my meal. And apparently he gave the whole thing to us free. And I was wondering, did he forget about uh, the previous week? I couldn't figure out. And apparently he had forgotten about it. He'd forgotten about it. And, uh, and we knew he drank a lot. And uh, apparently he'd forgotten that he'd give us all this 
spread the week before. So we got a two free meals. And that was the story of John Tuck. So all those years and he made you pay full price as a redhead when you should have been getting half off. Yes. It's like you cashed them all in in, right. in two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I got back at him. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Gideon Beinstock on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing very well. Much better. I was sick a little bit earlier this week, but now I'm almost perfect. Nice to have you with us. Thank you. You're at Closer On, which is a winery in the Sierra Foothills of California. That's correct. But originally you're from uh, Israel. I grew up in Israel. I was born and grew up in Israel. I stayed in Israel until after a couple of years after the military service. I started college, dropped out, and left the country. You told me once you were kind of like a perennially leaving, dropping out of things. Uh, for the earlier part of my life, certainly was, yeah. I, I, at some point, felt like I was like a leaf in the wind, and it, it bogged me. I mean, it, it really irritated me about uh, realizing this about myself, but that's the way I was. So it took me many years to gradually settle into anything, and uh, winemaking is almost the opposite of this in my life. I never aspired to become a winemaker, but as soon as I found myself making wine... I settle down. It's like as if I'm finally where I always wanted to be without knowing it. Before you arrived in California, you did some traveling in Europe and also in France with, with around wine. Right. I, I left Israel not so much for leaving Israel, but more for getting out of the lifestyle that I was living at the time. It was uh, very, I mean, I was studying art and I was becoming a relatively quickly successful artist, probably too fast for my own ego. So it started putting me into circumstances and situations that I, I, w I lost my integrity too frequently to, to not be able to notice it, or to be able to not notice it, I should say. And also, it was the, in the 70s, so there was a lot of drugs, a lot of sex, free love. And my girlfriend at the time, who was also a, a beginning artist, and myself found ourselves coming to the same point in our lives at the same spot, which at the same moment, which was that we were getting sick and tired of our own selves in that situation. And we decided to do the two most extreme things that we could imagine, conceive of. One of them was to get married, which nobody did in our world. And the other was to take off and just go and look for something else. So we did both and we left the country and started wandering. So the, the, the least expensive ticket we could find out of Israel was to Greece. So we took a boat to Greece and... First night we landed in Greece, we were robbed. <laughs> so that started my new life. <laughs> by, by a restaurant? Because when I've been to Greece, <laughs> the way that they charge for fish there is so expensive. Like a whole fish is like $150. Yeah. Well, no, that was by just some, some tourist scavengers. I don't know, whatever. Uh, we, were, we spent the night outside on the Acropolis, and that was too naive, I guess. So yeah, that started it on the left foot, but then we got stuck on an island for a while. And then 
we left the island and started wandering around Europe. I went to Italy, then went to Switzerland, and then went to Paris. And in Paris, I got stuck. I, I'm part French by blood, and I speak French, and I felt very much at home in Paris from the start. And then we came up with a new concept. We thought, okay, let's stay here for as long as it makes sense and nourishes us and see, and then we'll keep wandering and just take roots wherever roots take themselves rather than force and decide where to land. So that's how, how I end up in, in France and stayed for a little while. And then I joined a certain, um, I would say, controversial group that some people refer to as a cult. It's called the Fellowship of Friends and other people think it's a wonderful group. I think it's probably both. Uh, but it was leading me to my spiritual, um, what would I say? It was contributing to my sp spiritual seeking, which was at that time based on two philosophers called Gurdjieff and Uspensky. And uh, the Fellowship of Friends is loosely based on their teaching. And so I got stuck there for a while. And then I went to visit California, which is their headquarter. Went back to Europe, went back to America and back and forth and back and forth. And finally landed in California on a permanent basis, so it seems, in the, towards the end of 1991. But you had been selling the Renaissance wines in Europe. That's correct. Um, the way it sort of happened is that when I was living in, in Paris for the first time, around the mid or late 70s, I had some uh, wine epiphanies. The first one was very pedestrian, but it was very meaningful for myself. We, as two aspiring artists, we were rather poor at the time. And we would go around and, and sort of scavenge food after the markets there in Paris. And But we liked wine because uh, we graduated from dope. And at that point, we thought, okay, wine is cool. So, but we didn't have any budget. So we lived in a tiny apartment over an apartment in, in the 15th quarter in Paris. And every evening I would go down to the supermarket and spend two francs on a bottle of wine, which was like 50 cents a bottle of wine. So you can imagine these were very basic quality wines. And that's what we drank. And we were very happy with this because we didn't know anything further than that. And there was a moment for her birthday that I thought, we're going to splurge. We're going to treat ourselves to a fancy bottle of wine. And I spent five francs on a bottle of wine. And I remember the label in the wine. It was a Bergerac. And so it's a lowly appellation. Uh, but it was, I think, my first ever appellation wine. And it blew my mind. It, suddenly I realized there is way more to wine than I ever imagined. I heard people snobbying around it and, and saying all kinds of highfalutin things about it, but I never believed in it. I thought it was all BS. And then I discovered, well, no, there is a lot more to wine than I ever experienced. And ever since then, I became more and more passionately entwined with wine. And even though I, I still make my, made my living for many years from art and then from programming at some point, but I started gravitating towards wine and I made many, many friendships, good friendships in France with people who worked the vine and, and grew grapes and made wine, learned more, about, more and more about it. And finally, when the opportunity presented itself, somebody offered me a job, Renaissance, which I ended up eventually making wines there. They offered me a job selling their wines in Europe. They just released their first release and they aspired to have uh, imports around Europe. So I started traveling around Europe selling Renaissance wine. And I ended up doing this for about five years from around 88. No, so it's not five years. I, I, I'm sorry. No, it's for three years I did this from 88 till uh, the end of 91. Because the first commercial release from Renaissance was 88. Yes, it was in 88. It was his first uh, uh, Riesling and a Petit Syrah and a Cabernet Sauvignon. And, and we released a few more wines after that. And uh, yeah, and in Europe, uh, the market was very open to these wines because in style, they were arguably more European than Californian. And um, they were agers. They aged very well and they tended to be much more austere than most Californian wines. Uh, and revealing more and more richness as they age rather than the opposite uh, direction, as many Californian wines do. So in Europe, there was uh, quite a bit of acclaim to them. Uh, some of the very leading 
people in the wine industry became immediately attracted. For example, in England, they were represented by uh, David Peppercorn and Serena Sutcliffe, both wow. of which are masters of wines of high caliber. And, and so they did attract, attract a lot of very positive uh, attention. Whereas in the United States, they always struggled. Uh, with the marketing. Still obscure today, I think. Still obscure. And they have a, a small following that is extremely fanatic about uh, claiming that their Cabernets are the ultimate Cabernet Sauvignon. And and most people just don't know about them or say, well, they're sort of okay. So back at that time, it was Carl Werner who was... Carl Werner was a German-born winemaker uh, from a family of uh, a wine family in the Rheingau. They had their own property until I think it was uh, either confiscated by the state or somehow taken over by the state. I truly do not know what is fact and what is fiction in relation to Carl Werner's life because he... He was a man that uh, was larger than life in some uh, respect. He, he used to tell a lot of stories about himself that occasionally seemed to contradict rather blatantly. So I truly do not know what the truth is. The, what I did know of the man when I did know him, I did not work at, in a winery at that time, but I did work in the same environment. I worked at the vineyard at that time uh, when he was alive. And... He was uh, fairly loud, seemed to be rather fearful and overreactive to things. He was very sensitive about his wines, which tended to be controversial in style. He made uh, experimental reds both before Renaissance and early in Renaissance that were super extracted, big time tannic and uh, black monsters that he believed would age forever, gracefully. Other people said that they were out of balance and whatever, and some people uh, admired them too. It, it was just controversial. He was relatively well-known in the wine industry in uh, California, well before my time. He taught at Davis. I don't know exactly what he taught, but he taught at Davis. He was also consultant to Mondavi in the early, very early days of Mondavi, I think 69 and 70. Um, so it means, and he was the beginning of the, uh, how do you say, the founding winemaker at Callaway that initially was very prominent. It's a winery that is not prominent nowadays, but uh, did have some acclaim early on. And his initial releases at Renaissance, especially the late harvest Riesling and Sauvignon Blanc, drew a lot of praise uh, internationally, a lot, a lot of praise. And so you did move back to California and you started working with Renaissance and the Fellowship of Friends in California. How did that come about? Well, uh, after working for them in Europe, when I decided to move, I was married. This was, I, I'm now currently happily married for the third time. My second wife, who was also American, and I were living in Europe, and she wanted to go back home. And when we decided to move back home to California... I talked to the winery or to the to Renaissance management, and they asked me, "So, okay, you're coming back. So, do you want to sell wine for us in the United States?" And I said, "No, thank you." And the reason was that I, as a guest, when I visited the winery when I was in Europe, I went to a couple of trade tastings, large ones, and I was appalled by the energy of trade people selling wine and these commodities here. Uh, which was very different than the European wine trade, which tended, at, that, at least at that time, to be very real, much more relaxed, civilized, or, or civil, I would say, cultured, people with a lot of education. Like with David Peppercorn, I regularly met for lunch, and we would sit and talk about art, about culture, about philosophy, about literature, about music, and it was just delightful. And that was fairly normal for wine people. Whereas here, I felt everybody was about to choke each other about the quality or who gets more uh, market visibility or whatever. Anyway, so I was scared of that. I didn't want to do that. And I was very passionate about wine. And uh, I was part of the wine, uh, how do you say, the Master of Wine program in England. I passed one of the exams and never attempted the other exam. So I, I sort of dropped out of that too. <laughs> and when I moved back, when he asked me that question... 
I thought for a moment and I thought, well, the only thing that I've not done in relation to wine, because before I was, I, I was conducting tasting classes, I was writing about wine, I purchased wine and sold wine professionally, but I never made wine professionally. And I thought, well, let's go into the winery for a little couple of years time and get my hands dirty and complete my wine education. So he said, sure. And they put me there as a trainee assistant winemaker. Uh, under, under Diana Werner, who was Carl's uh, widow, who was making at the time. Carl died in 88, and she made the wine since then. That was late 91. And uh, what happens next is that she proceeded to get remarried, and in 93 had her first baby. And so by 93, come harvest time, I basically was... Uh, left there holding the winery. She was at home calling me on the phone, but I ran the winery. I was not fully trained and I was terrified, petrified, <laughs> but uh, that's what happened. And uh, while being petrified, I also realized that I was very comfortable in these shoes and that, again, I belonged there. And in, in a way, it felt like Everything that I've ever done in my life, which was pretty diversified before, sort of came together and landed very comfortably. It was to me as simple as making, as cracking an egg and making an egg in the morning. Uh, very intuitive, simple, straightforward, just basic stuff. What <laughs> wines were you making at that time, early 90s? Okay, well, what Renaissance was doing, what I, what I inherited... Like most Californian wines, it had a two-level program, estate and reserve of a few different wines. The main, the three flagship wines of Renaissance were Cabernet Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc, and Riesling. That was directly from Carl Werner. For him, Cabernet was the only respectable grape. He did not acknowledge Chardonnay or Pinot Noir as having any worth whatsoever. He said that Burgundy was a land of peasants that are just uh, too full of themselves. And uh, Riesling was the ultimate white wine for him. And the only contender would be Chateau d'Iquem and uh, Sauternes. So therefore, so he, he declared that they make their late harvest from Sauvignon Blanc, which in fact is more Semillon in it than Sauvignon Blanc. But for him, it was Sauvignon Blanc, uh, the ultimate French white grape. So these were the three grapes that he grew, pretty much almost exclusively. Initially, Renaissance experimented with tiny, for a very short time, with tiny plots of other grapes, but they were annihilated very quickly, moving only to these three grapes. So that's what I started from. And the winery was run in a very conventional California style, as far as the winemaking style, with the twist that Carl Werner was Germanic and he brought a lot of concern about cleanliness, sterility, following up everything with a super meticulous attention to detail. So both a strength and a weakness from my standpoint, uh, very high standards and uh, very, very Germanic. As an assistant winemaker, I had a colleague, Paul Flitcroft, who now lives in, happily in London, having nothing to do with wine. We were both trainees at the same time, and we became very good friends. And we started playing this game in hiding that we were snatching away samples of the wines before and after every single step of the way, before and after racking, before and, other, and after filtration, before and after uh, batonage. No, actually, there was no batonage even at that time, but uh, centrifuging, um, fining, cold stability, and on and on and on. And there were many, many what was considered advanced processes, and we started making a library of samples. And after a few months, we started bringing those up out from hiding into all kinds of blind tastings environments. And it became, at least to me, to my own understanding, very, very clear and evident that a lot of what was considered completely basic, common sense winemaking in California, to me, did not make any sense. It, it was overdone, unnecessarily done. And what I discovered very clearly is that there's always a trade-off. And even if the result 
in some of its aspects seem more satisfactory than what it started with, is always something that is lost. And the question started becoming, what do you lose and do you prefer to lose it or keep it? So as soon as I landed in the, in the winemaker's job, the first thing that I started doing is peeling off the onion, is starting removing everything that I was convinced was useless. So we, we immediately sold the, the centrifuges and we stopped filtering and we started running experiments with non-inoculated fermentations. And instead of having full temperature control moment by moment in, in all the fermentation and so on, we started loosening that and experimenting just with hot fermentations, no temperature control, and and so on and so forth. So there, there are many, many details, as you, I'm sure you know, there are literally dozens of different, uh, what now to me seems to be unnecessary decisions that winemakers make during the way with the good intention of improving their wines. So with at Renaissance, being owned by the Fellowship of Friends, I had, relatively to a winemaker that he holds the job as a winemaker, I had large freedom to do whatever I please because, in a way, I was the only professional in the whole company, uh, even though I started by not truly being a winemaking professional. But in terms of some market understanding and so on, I already had a pretty good understanding of the international market and different things in relation to the wine world. So I made the decisions sort of by myself, although I always restrained myself from going all the way to completely hands-off winemaking, because still, it was not my grapes, it was not my freedom to take very, very significant risks. I always experimented with, before getting rid of any process or any step of the way and ran parallel experiments and so on. So in the early years, I was... <laughs> like a compulsive young kind of winemaker, I made literally hundreds of experiments, small scale experiments with different way of doing this, different way of doing that, bottling different things. I mean, fermenting different lots separately, bottling them separately, instead of blending everything the way it was done before at Renaissance. I wanted to understand where are the best uh, sites for Cabernet? Where are the best sites for Sauvignon Blanc? Are there any awful sites for Cabernet Sauvignon? Which they were, but I didn't know exactly where they were. So I started breaking the fermentations apart into dozens, over 80 different Cabernet fermentations in one harvest and to, to understand it. And, and very clearly, at least the, the broad picture emerged very, very quickly. And then I started lobbying for reducing the, the, scale, uh, the scale of the, the operation. Because the, there was a lot of vineyards. There was a lot, yes. They initially planted 365 acres with no commercial plan, with no idea of truly where they're gonna sell, what wine and why and how. And uh, so there was no business plan. And uh, it was very good wishing, and, but a little naive. And they had planted in the late 70s, but they didn't release until the late 80s. That's right, which I believe was, uh, marketing-wise, a huge mistake that they made. Because by the time they released the first wine, they already had a backlog. Whereas if they had the sense, the good sense of releasing their first very small harvest vintage, vintages, they would have a chance to sell out and start creating demand. Whereas by the time they sold out, they already have an oversupply, which means that from the start nearly, they had to start discounting and playing all kinds of games to move the wine out to make space for more. And so it put them in a great disadvantage to not have some kind of marketing professional to guide them in that. Yeah, but in a way, uh, the, the upside of all of this story is that it provided individuals with great opportunities to learn from these mistakes. And I believe that at least I've learned from some of these mistakes. So by the time it came to Close Saron, I came up with a completely different game plan that have worked very, very well, is to stay very small, to start very, very small, and to never exceed a certain scale. And it's like a contract that uh, my wife, Saren, Close Saron is named after my wife, whose name we call the 
the woman is Saren and the wine is Saron, close Saron. And we sort of made a contract with ourselves from the start to never exceed a thousand cases production. And two reasons. One of them is to not mess up our own lives and to not mess up the wine. And so from the start, we had a relatively, even though we released just 30 cases of wine, which is nothing, but still it took a while to sell it because we didn't have any marketing and sales budget. And uh, it relatively quickly demand strip uh, supply. So even though you only sell 50 cases, if you have more demand than this, it's good because the next year you'll sell a little bit more. So it seems to work. And at this point we are at full capacity and we sell what we have. So how long were you at Renaissance? Uh, for, well, if you include my time in the vineyard, my time in sales and my time as a winemaker, I was there for at least 25 years, maybe more. As the the winemaker, I think officially about 18 or 19 years, I don't recall exactly, but something near 20 years. Yeah, so for a considerable chunk of my life. I tried some different wines and then you'd had a chance to find when you arrived there. Like I've tried uh, some Rhone wines, Roussan, Viognier from Renaissance. And I think there were some times where Syrah was blended in to different red wines and maybe even with white wine grapes. How what were some of the different cuvées that were released? Right. That That is all a result of my frenetic experimentation from the start. As soon as I started, as soon from 94 and on, we started grafting over Renaissance Vineyard was plant own rooted vinifera vines. So, so not, not grafted on not grafted, grafted vines. Right. So the root is Cabernet Sauvignon or Sauvignon Blanc or Riesling for the most part, tiny fractions of whatever other grapes they had. But from 94, we started because there's a, a striking visual resemblance between the Renaissance Hill, which is a beautiful hill to the Hermitage Hill in the Northern Rhone. And um, some of my deepest winemaking roots go to the Northern Rhone. And I, the soil type is not ex extremely different. They're both from volcanic source. It's at, at Renaissance or in the Sierra foothills, it's generally sort of a cousin of granite. Uh, whereas in the Northern Rhone, it's true granite, but it's close enough its composition to at least experiment with own varieties. So from the early 90s, we started grafting over some Syrah, some Viognier, Roussan, also Pinot Noir, and um, um, I don't remember, many other grapes. I mean, there was also Semillon. We added Semillon. And we started experimenting with some traditional family fermentation, sort of the Bordeaux family would make Bordeaux-style wines. And that's where I started, because I started with a French wine background. So my preconceived ideas were French. And so there was the Bordeaux family, there was the uh, Rhone family. So we had some Grenache, some Syrah, and again, the whites, and some Burgundy-type grapes. After a short few years of experimentation, I started cross-blending because it obviously made a lot more sense where we were with the grapes that we had. And we started having all kinds of what are considered, uh, whatever, non-traditional blends, such as uh, Syrah Merlot, or we had one white that was called, I'm trying to remember, my uh, uh, the Closeron white is called Carte Blanche. And the, the Renaissance propriety white wine was called, um, don't remember anymore, sorry, it's been a few years. And th in that, we started by co-fermenting Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, because I thought it was going to be a Bordeaux-style white wine. And very quickly, we started also blending it or co-fermenting some Viognier, some Chardonnay. One time we tried Riesling, it didn't work well, but whatever we had, we started experimenting with. So it diversified quite a bit. And in so you put the, the varietal experimentations right next to the site, the vineyard site experimentation. And in, in a few years, it gave me a very broad sort of database of what are the options here, because it's quite diversified in microclimates and uh, and soil types and so on. What are the options and what are the possibilities? And 
it always fascinated me. It's, it's really very broad and enchanting because uh, it's much more accommodating than uh, vineyards that are planted in a homogenous terroir, like in a flat valley where the exposure is all the same, the drainage is all the same, the wind is all the same. There it's on the hillside with 700 feet of altitude drop from the top to the bottom of the vineyard. All the exposures, different so soil types, different drainage, different wind conditions, and so on and so forth. And it creates an amazing variety. So you can plant in one single vineyard, complete, almost contrasting grapes like Riesling, which likes it cool and likes poor soils, next to Grenache that likes it baking hot, almost next to Pinot Noir, which again is even cooler than the Riesling and so on and so forth. And it was amazing, amazing experience. And also terraced vineyards. Yes, the vineyards were terraced, uh, what's called a contour te terracing, which meant uh, it aesthetically, it's probably the most beautiful terraces that you can see. It looks like the Douro Valley in Portugal. Unfortunately for wine quality, it makes it more challenging. Why? Because if you plant one terrace along a very topographically a very complex hillside, you can have in one contour terrace different exposures, such as northern exposure, then western, then southern, then back to northern, and so on, which translated harvest time to underripe, scorched, overripe, perfectly ripe, back to underripe, mildewed, clean, and so on and so forth. And so if you just pick it, automatically, I mean, it was not picked by machine, but if you just send a crew and you pick everything on that terrace, you get a mishmash of different qualities, different styles, different potential for quality. So that was part of the challenge. And that's one of the reasons why I started taking out vineyards. I wanted to get rid of all the inferior sites to be left only with the best terroir and took some lobbying, but we started doing this and uh, removed eventually about 80% of that vineyard. So it started at how big? 365 acres. And then when you left, how big was it? In production, there were less than 30 acres. There was about 90% drop. And what was being made when you left? What did you just... The last year that I was fully in charge of the fermentation and, and winemaking was 06. And we had a few reds and a few whites. Uh, the reds were, there was a pure Syrah, uh, a pure Syrah, yes. There was a pure Cabernet Sauvignon. There was another Cabernet Sauvignon, what we call the Vin de Terroir, which came from one individual microclimate and soil, and that was different in different harvests, depending on the quality and the character of that wine. The aim there was to make simply the most terroir distinctive wine that was possible that year. Not the biggest, not the deepest, not the most complex, simply the most distinctive expression of varietal and terroir combination. So there was that. There was, uh, again, Syrah. There was occasionally and also a Syrah vin de terroir, also based on one single microclimate of Syrah. There was a Syrah Cabernet co-fermentation, which was called uh, Granite Crown, because it came from the very, very crest of their hill at about 30, uh, 2350 feet, 2350 feet or so. That's pretty high up. That's pretty high up, yes. And it was on, on real uh, rock crest. It was very, very rocky. That's why it was called Grand Crown. We made a Viognier. We made a Roussan. By then, I think we no longer made the white blend anymore. Uh, we made a Rosé, usually from Syrah or Syrah and Cabernet. I think that was all. Sometimes I find when I deal with wines that are grown in granite, there's a certain freshness to the wine. Did you find kind of a fresh character to the tannins? Um, I like to think of it as, as sort of, uh, actually, I did not coin the phrase, but I heard it once and it stuck with me. It's like a, a electric minerality uh, because it's almost like sensing a certain electrical charge on your palate and, it, and it's linked to the minerality of the wine. Uh, they may be one and the same, or they may be two different things. I'm not quite sure technically, but um, that is what I find on granitic soil, is that they have a certain kind of intensity, minerality, electricity in them. Now, if you let them get overripe, you lose that. At least that's my experience. Was there an emphasis on physical work and the fellowship? Yes. Is that part of the reason that 
you know, everything was hand harvested. And Very much so. I mean, part of the philosophy of the fellowship is that as a human being, we are not born complete and we are left to our own devices to complete ourselves uh, in all ways, which means physically, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, and hard work or s relatively hard life is, can be part of it, can be used for that. Where did you meet Saren? I met Saren at Renaissance. She was an assistant vineyard manager for eight years, and she was the number one uh, grafter and pruner of vines. And uh, so we shared a passion there. And literally, as soon as I broke up, uh, as soon as my second marriage broke up, I fell in love with Saren and, uh, and we got together. You started your own winery and how did that evolve? Well, um, at some point I was dissatisfied with being part of the Fellowship of Friends. And yet my life was entwined into the Renaissance. I, I felt truly fortunate, almost like in a biblical kind of a sense, to have landed with what I consider to be an amazing vineyard site and the possibilities that it represents as a winemaker and as a... Because for me, winemaking is... It's not an art. I don't consider it an art, but it is something that goes fairly deep in myself. And so I couldn't just tear myself away from it. So I tried to make it work. I thought maybe if I start on the side, a small-scale project that Saren and I would be working together at this and maybe it would feed me and sustain me longer in this environment. So that was one of the causes. And there was another cause. The other cause is that Closer Own began around a half acre of existing vineyard in a very cool microclimate in Oregon House. That's the place where both Renaissance and Closer Own are in California. And a friend of mine, uh, Leonard Hill, planted for his own home winemaking use a half acre of vines and he planted it amongst the trees without really clearing everything and and he planted whatever was planted at Renaissance initially, mainly Cabernet Sauvignon, a little bit of Merlot, maybe a little bit of Chardonnay and Riesling, mainly Cabernet. The thing is that the microclimate was too cool to ripen that properly and by the mid-90s he got, I think, I think he got tired of fighting with the elements and he asked Saren and I if we wanted to take over that little vineyard of his and just play with it. And we said yes. And I asked him, Ken, do you mind if we graft it over to Pinot to see because Pinot likes it cool. And I thought maybe Pinot will succeed there. And I was passionate about Burgundies, so Pinot was high on my list. And he said no problem. So in 95, we did two things. We grafted over the Cabernet and all, the, all these varieties. We grafted them over to Pinot. And we also doubled the density. So between every two existing vines, we planted a new own-rooted Pinot vine. And within a year or two, we already knew that at least the microclimate was perfect for, for Pinot. We didn't know yet how the wine will express itself and if it's going to be a great or just an okay Pinot. Um, but by the time he decided to sell the land, which was, I think, I think he first approached us about this around 97 or so, um, I said, sure, <laughs> I'd like to stay with that vineyard and see, follow it through and see, because if I could create in California a small winery that is based on Pinot Noir that would make Pinot that for me are very soil based in their expression and terroir specific, that would be something wonderful, especially in, a, in an area that is generally considered completely the opposite or completely the wrong area for Pinot. It's considered too hot, the wrong, the wrong soil, the wrong climate, everything is wrong for Pinot. And I thought, well, that's interesting because at least I know the microclimate is right. So yeah, I already had half of the equation. So by the time it became available, I said, yes, and the thing is that working for Renaissance as the winemaker, even though in a normal conventional winery that was producing 40,000 cases, I would have made a fairly good income. At Renaissance, I was paid because it's sort of a, call it a semi-cult or whatever it is, I was making very little money. So I didn't have any savings or any money. So I had to start from scratch. And the financing that we found available, I was rejected by banks, but 
What did go through was my application through the FSA, that's an, a federal agency called the Farm Service Agency, as a beginning farm. And to qualify for that, you need to be, num number one, rejected by commercial lenders. Number two, you need to know what you're doing very well. And number three, not have the money to do it by yourself. And then you get the financing from the government, from the federal government, and very good terms in paying it back. But that meant that we would have to go commercial. Because originally you thought, I, we'll, we'll just make this for ourselves. Exactly. I thought, well, we'll have a barrel of Pinot to drink a year. That's very nice and <laughs> dandy. <laughs> Yeah, so that's how we, how Closeron was born. Both, in a way, the two coincided. What I said earlier about my wish to have a project of my own on the side, and finding this microclimate that was good for Pinot, that was too much to resist. When I think of the Sierra <laughs> foothills as an AVA, I mean it's a big area and it's not often exploited for wine. There's some history, you know, around mining in the 1850s and 60s, and then it kind of disappeared. And now you see more Rhone-inspired wineries now and again, sort of scattered through the area, but it you know doesn't have a premier reputation within California. What are some of the challenges of working in that, that area? Well, uh, the way you describe it is very correct. It's a huge area, nearly meaningless in, in from the point of view of its, uh, I don't know the right word, homogeneity, homogenicity, or however you say that, as one terroir, because it covers uh, extreme differences in in altitudes and in again in in microclimates and 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 soil and so forth so it's very hard to make sense of it as a whole but um and it was planted very sort of uh, loosely around the gold uh, gold rush era in the valleys even uh, well in the area where we are which is in Yuba county way north in in the sierra foothills ava there were some vineyards on a large scale, but they were not in the hills. They were right in the valley next to the hills, so on the gateway to the gold country. Up in the hills, it was all very tiny vineyards. And they were, I don't know what they were so much initially. I'm not, that's a Tigan Pasalakwa question. That's not for me. <laughs> he would know the answers. In, in more recent times, the Sierra Foothills were mainly known for Zinfandel. And... From around the 90s, more in the early 2000s, the Syrah and Viognier and so on started gaining ground there. People realized that there is more potential than Zinfandel, although I know some people think that Zinfandel is the ultimate and other people do not. So, uh, so Rhone varieties made quite some strides into the foothills. I believe th there are a few things that work against the foothills. One of them is that Demographically, the area is not as wealthy, not as well-funded as coastal areas that are near to larger population centers. So a lot of the wine industry there, I think, is sort of poorly funded. Uh, second is, I think, maybe because of somewhat similar reasons, uh, it did not attract a whole lot of high, highly skilled winemaking and viticulture I believe that a lot of the vineyards are planted out of convenience and lack of funds, or maybe lack of research, planted in the wrong places. They're planted in relatively high altitude, flat areas, which meant deeper soils, less costly farming, but larger volumes and lower quality. Whereas the, the real assets of the foothills is the slopes. It's the rocky slopes where you get little grapes, you need to work very hard, but you get flavors and distinctive uh, character that none can match. So that's some of the, what, what the status quo has been for a long time. And besides, it's an area that uh, access is very difficult. The roads are not developed. There are no freeways around or very few short freeways here and there. But uh, travel time is difficult. It takes a long time and uh, deliveries and pickups, everything is more expensive. We're completely off the, the route of the normal truckers. So whenever somebody, like if we have a new distributor and they want to pick up wine in the winery, which is completely no brainer in, in the valleys, they typically, it doesn't work. Meaningly, I, meaning I would have to pick up the wine, bring it down to some warehouse in whatever American Canyon or Napa or somewhere like this for them to pick it up there because otherwise the trucker would charge them an extra $300 just to come my way and get the wine. So that's an example. And also uh, skilled labor is much less available than in the better funded areas. 
So you work with people generally, if you are on large scale, you need to work with a lot of migrant laborers that uh, know very little about what they're doing. And you can get basic work done, but not very highly sophisticated work done. So in a way, you had a, an advantage because you had a, a constant labor force at Renaissance. At Renaissance, yes. In the initial year, in the, in the early years, the membership would uh, sort of do a lot of the labor themselves. And gradually it fizzled out and it started becoming more and more difficult to run the vineyard, which is part of the reason why we shrunk it as well. Because instead of having at harvest time in the early days, you'd have over 100 people that would show up begging to pick grapes. And by late 80s, those same 100 or 200 people started getting a little bit older and a little bit wealthier and maybe a little bit better or further away or they had other interests and so on. And it started becoming more and more tricky to conduct harvest. And then we, at Renaissance, they started uh, hiring outside labor to help them, which at first was a no-no, big time no-no. I mean, it's against their own philosophy. Uh, but it, they started living with the realities of having created a monster. When you first launched your own venture, you were leasing some grapes from Renaissance. Yes. Uh, we started with the very naive... I was naive too. <laughs> I probably am too, because all farmers, by definition, need to be somewhat optimistic and naive. But I started with the with the idea that I will only be producing the Pinot from that little site. But uh, the way we farm is basically chemical free, which meant uh, no fertilizing and so on, which meant that means that the vineyards take way more than the conventional three years to bear fruit, especially on any kind of a scale. Those vineyards that I planted around that older block in 1999 are still producing less than one ton per acre. And they are basically 15, 14, 15 years old. And so they take a long time to come online. And for a lot of people, that sounds like folly. It doesn't make any sense. But for me, it made perfect sense. Because as I said earlier, it's fine to start with undersupply. And gradually, as the vineyard matures and produces more, I also have more supply to take care of that. You have also planted some other vineyards. Yes. Uh, more, Much more recently, uh, we planted... Part of ending my relationship with Renaissance, a few things happened in 2010. It sort of converged again into another shift uh, in, my, in my thinking and in my business and in my life. There were three things. One of them that started a few years earlier, a childhood friend of mine, we were together in high school and whatever, ended up living right next door to me, bought the land next to me. The, his land... Uh, how would I describe it? Both of our properties are divided across them by a seasonal creek. His house is below that creek. Our house is above that creek. Our vineyard is above that creek. And he had the backside of his property above that creek with difficult access because he was living below the creek. So for a long time, he said, listen, I'm not using, using my, the backside of my property. If you want to, why don't you plant some vineyards there? And I kept telling him, I'm too old for plant, planting more vineyards. I'm not interested, truly. So that was one element. Second element is 2010 was a year that right after we picked our white grapes on the leased land from Renaissance, somebody was mowing on the Renaissance vineyard next to our vines and started a fire. And it annihilated our portion of the white grapes. <laughs> so that was the second element. The third element was that in 2010, there was a sequence of like the perfect storm of, of spring frosts. There was a, a wave, there were three waves of frost in about two weeks interval. There was one in late April, the second one in early May, the third one in late May. And basically it nearly annihilated all of my crop or 80% of my crop were basically gone. So I had to buy grapes because uh, at my small scale, I cannot survive a year with no production. Now, since I didn't have experience with buying grapes, I first turned to some neighbors and I wanted to see, and we, we bought some Syrah to make some rosé for the tickled pink. And the quality was awful. It was just bad quality. And when I realized that, I also, also realized that I don't know the first thing about buying grapes. So 
I looked around and I found that I did know some people who did know where to direct me. And that's why, how I got directed first towards the Bechthold field in Lodi. It is a very old vineyard that produces Sanso. And we bought some Sanso from them. The vineyard, I, I always assume that Lodi makes only inferior quality grapes, inferior quality wines, not interested. But my friend who is a professional viticulturist told me these are very good grapes. And the vines being 130 odd years old, I thought, well, <laughs> there's something to say for that. So as an experiment, I bought some of that and I was extremely happy with the quality. So boom, so that's another sort of, Another element, there are grapes available that I can afford buying and they can make really good wine. So they have that, you have my burnt vineyard, you have my friend who says that we can plant vineyards on his own land. And it started me thinking, and also I want to disconnect, I want to disconnect from Renaissance, from the fellowship. And um, I decided, okay, we're going to make a, a jump here. Um, we're going to discontinue our leasing from Renaissance. We're going to plant some more vineyards, some new vineyards on my friend's land. And in the interim, until those vineyards give us fruit, we're going to be purchasing some fruit. So it sort of all came together into a new possibility. And from 11, we started buying fruit from the white blend for the, from, for the tickle pink, the rosé. And we continued buying fruit for the, what we call the out of the blue, which is the Sanso. Uh, wine. This year, you know, historical drought in California and you dry farm. Has that affected the production this year and in 2014 so far? What are you looking at? Well, first of all, philosophically, we do not quote-unquote dry farm, meaning I have by now, maybe because I was a quote-unquote cult member for a long time, I have an allergy to dogmas and to conventions. And, um, the idea of not watering a vineyard appeals to me. And yet some vineyards need to be watered in order to produce good quality grapes. Uh, in, in practice, we just observe. And uh, when a vine needs water, it gets water. We have drip lines everywhere in our vineyards. When it does not need water, it does not get any water. So our older block, for example, in the last four years has has been watered twice in four years. So it's basically, you could say, dry, far dry farmed. The other younger blocks have been watered much more than that, possibly 20 times in the last four years. So they are watered. So it's, it's, there's much more flexibility there. However, we are already affected by that drought. Last year, what happened, especially the new vineyards that we have been planting on our neighbor's land, uh, there, these are baby vines, one or two years old. And there we're getting water from our water district, local water district, to which we don't have access on our own property. So our other vineyards are not watered by it, but those vineyards are. And they only deliver water sort of unreliably, but still deliver water until October 15th, which for them is the official end of the season. They stop delivering water. What happened last season is that the season continued hot, dry, bone dry, uh, November, December, the vines were still not dormant and they needed water and they dried and, di and died. So we lost already, not, not all, but a, a solid percent of the vines that we planted over the last past two, two years. Now, 14, the state already announced that they're not going to give water to the local water districts which probably will translate to us not getting any water at all in 2014, which would mean that we will lose probably 100% or near 100% of our two, last two years' investments. So that's what we're facing. Another thing we're facing, um, a number of our neighbors, I mean, generally the, the drinking water in our area is all, the, all comes from wells. There's no mun mun municipal water supply including our own, we have two wells on our own property. And one of them is already showing signs of stress. And many of our neighbors have lost their wells completely in the last year. So that's something else that we stand to lose is any water. 
in which case you ask me what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. But that's the reality in Northern California is people don't realize how awful what is happening there is because it's really awful. It means that I think we will start seeing people migrating away from California. Uh, the state can turn into desert very quickly. It used to be semi-desert before all the dams and so on, and it can turn back into there. And uh, the fact that apparently with some corruption aid, uh, a lot of the water that comes from Northern California is being sent down to LA is not a simple matter and it's not something to simply ignore. It's, uh, it's a huge deal and, and people are going to pay in their with their well-being and their livelihood because of that kind of situation. So some of the wines that you have been able to make, tell me a little bit about them. Okay, at, at Closeron, I mean, obviously from the start we were Pinot-centered, even though, Pinot-centric, even though by quantity the Pinot represents so far a relatively small percent of what we make. We make a total of, in average, again, 700 or 800 cases a year, divided by usually six to six wines. Uh, there was one rosé that we make, that typically is a blend or co-fermentation. All the blends that we make are co-fermentations. It means that the grapes go into one tub, they ferment together. We don't do winery blends. So we have one such rosé, one such white, and, uh, and the rest are reds. The reds, one of them is a Pinot, one of them is a pure Syrah. And then, at least from the Renaissance holdings, when we were farming those, we made a few co-fermentations based on Syrah. So we had one wine that we called Black Pearl that was basically Syrah co-fermented with Cabernet Sauvignon and Petit Verdot. And another one, it was called Cuvée Mysterieuse, that was Syrah co-fermented with Merlot and Viognier. The reason why of these two is that we were farming two very different Syrah micro-lots or micro-sites on the Renaissance property, one of them east-facing, one west-facing, and they produce very different character. And in order to maximize the expression of this character, we co-fermented one with Cabernet that made more sense for that character, and one was basically with Merlot that made more sense to that character. So that's how we got into this kind of a family of products. Now, in addition to that, we added from 2010 and on the, the blue series. It's not really a series, but the out of the blue that is Sanso, pu nearly pure Sanso. We co-ferment some other grapes that are picked at very low bricks and high acidity in order to acidify a little bit to sort of perk it up because Sanso, when it's ripe, tends to have relatively low acidity. And we make a sec second variation on the theme with more co-fermented Syrah and that we called a deeper shade of blue. So some people refer to these as the blue series, out of, out of the blue and a deeper shade of blue. And that's pretty much it for what we do. Why co-ferment instead of blend separate batches? Well, I had a lot of time to experiment with that stuff at Renaissance because we did a lot of winery blends. And gradually I realized that the earlier the blend occurs in the life of, uh, of the wine, basically the more integrated the wine becomes. Co-fermentation changes the whole interaction between different grape varieties. So they don't only affect each other on the level of the aromas and the balance of the elements, such as the acidity, the body, the tannin, and so forth. They, I, I don't exactly know what word to use, but they, they become transformed into each other. It's, it's as if they, you don't know where one ends and the other one begins. Uh, they turn into one harmony usually much more harmonious, more into one harmony, rather than a, a good assemblage, a good this plus this plus this, which tends to happen to some degree with later blends. The later you blend, the more the wines tend to remain to some degree more apart for the rest of their lives. You're known for immediately working with the grapes once harvested, like, you know, fairly quickly into the crusher. And what does that bring? Well, first of all, we don't have a crusher anymore. <laughs> I'm very happy to, to not own, not be a crusher owner anymore. But um, how would I say, I, 
with with the changing of my own taste and with the development of my own interest in wine, more and more and more, I I seek to avoid uh, processes or effects that change, that modify the character of the grape, therefore the character of the soil. And um, what happens if you take grapes and leave them? If you take that to an extreme, you will have a pasito. You will have something that you let shrivel, and obviously the character is widely different, wildly different than than what was originally there before you let it sit. So from the time you pick fruit and you just let it sit in the refrigerator or in a basket outside or whatever, it starts changing. Basically, I try to avoid anything that alters the <laughs> the pure, unaltered character of the grape and the soil themselves. And whenever you do something such as, say, cold maceration, uh, that is uh, cold soak, that is very popular. I tried it for a while and I liked certain things that it does, but then I also realized that it distorts something at the same time. So uh, I don't want to have the, the grapes just sit there and wait because they don't just stay the way they are. They keep changing. They're alive. So I want to start the fermentation or at least open them to the yeast and to the bacteria as soon as possible so that that will be what we, that that which will be fermented rather than something that meanwhile changes until it starts fermenting. Uh, so that's, that's the, the intent there. And it's the same intent that causes me to not so far, not experiment say with orange wine or with sherry or with a number of processes that, or, or, uh, um, uh, carbonic maceration. There are a number of processes that in themselves can assist, can help, can be very useful for many things, but they alter the in intrinsic character of the grape. And that's what I'm trying to avoid. And how have you found the wines to age? All of our wines tend to age amazingly long, which is, uh, I'm very pleased to find that, uh, especially by California standard. Even our Rosé, we, we started making Rosé in 04, and by some coincidence, one restaurant at some point told me, oh, by the way, we have a few bottles here of your 04, and we don't know what to do with them because obviously they're way over the hill. And I took them all back. And that was a couple of years ago. And we opened the bottle on that night, and it's delicious. It ages really, really well. The white ages, we started making white from 02, and it's on the way uphill. They taste better and better. All the reds age well. The Sanso, I don't know how long it will age, but for sure five or eight years. But anything that is Syrah or Pinot based, these are many decades. There are wines that will live for many decades. Twice a year, we have open house tastings in the winery and we randomly select like two, three, four vintages of every single wine to, to compare side by side. And we, we try to alternate every time something different so that those who come again and again, which there are many people who come again and again, get to taste everything. Like in a few times, you would taste dozens different wines from our library. And pretty much all the wines are going uphill, uh, going back to 99. Gideon Beinstock of Close Ron, thank you so much for being here today. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Gideon Beinstock of the Close Ron Rhymney in California. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.